Well, I'm really excited about the, the two young men coming up this morning to preach and uh, really excited about what uh, our next preacher is going to bring. Uh, Mark, come on up. Come on up as you're coming up. I'm going to introduce you. Many of you have met Mark before. Uh, some of you have never met Mark before. And uh, I'll tell you what, Mark is a, a great man of conviction. As a young man, as I probably will tell the story wrong and he'll correct me in a minute, but uh, having gone through the Bible college uh, training and then having uh, entered into uh, uh, his first church, uh, came to realize that uh, there's a lot of people uh, in leadership who are not committed to the life of Christ and holiness and righteousness of the truth. And uh, for a young man that's going to stand for the truth uh, in leadership, it's a kind of a dangerous place to be. And uh, that experience, unfortunately, was repeated itself a multitude of times. That Mark stood his ground. The, the, the scriptures is the standard. Jesus Christ is the standard for our life. And I, when I heard this man preach um, this particular sermon at the men's camp back in, uh, uh, I want to say Pennsylvania, but South Carolina, uh, man, I'm telling you what, it really moved me kind of conviction that you have as a young Christian and now as a, a middle-aged Christian. <laughs> and he's, he's really doing an excellent job. He's got a bazillion children. How many is that? Six. 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 And uh, his oldest is going to be uh, leading our uh, prayer time tomorrow. And, and Andrew's a great guy, a testament to a, a great father and mother living the life and sharing the truth. So let's bring him on. Mark Souter from Roanoke, Virginia. I think we're on there. Awesome. <clears throat> You're going to have to bear with me this morning a little bit. My voice is a little bit uh, raspy. So if I happen to hit some notes that you're not used to hearing, I may not even be used to hearing them. Uh, bear with me. But uh, we really are excited to be here, uh, my son uh, as well. And uh, the fact that we get the opportunity to, to share with uh, like-minded folk, uh, whether it's in our home state of Virginia or, or around the world or, or specifically here in Oregon, it is a true privilege to see uh, like-minded saints seeking the Lord, trying to mature their faith, uh, and encourage each other along the way. It really is truly uh, a blessing. Before I go any further, uh, I am excited to have Andrew with me as well, my oldest. So I'm asking him to come on up and just kind of pray uh, for, for, our, for the message today. And um, you know, I'm really excited to, to be here today. So, Andrew, if you would come on up and pray for us. Let's, let's pray. Dear God, we thank you so much that we are able to come together and uh, open your word for us. And uh, we just thank you so much that the saints are here to encourage each other because honestly, in a, in a world that's, uh, that is hateful towards such things, we need the encouragement of brothers and sisters in Christ. And so I pray that uh, today, as we hear this message and we hear many messages that you speak through these, uh, these uh, leaders and that we're all able to be encouraged and uh, spurred to uh, love and good deeds through you. And in Jesus' name I pray, amen. Yeah. Uh, if you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn to Psalm 118. I'm going to share a verse uh, really kind of dealing with the theme today, or specifically the, the title. Um, you know, I have, as Bill said, I had the privilege to kind of share a lot of the content of the message that I'm going to share with you today back in the men's camp uh, this past December. Uh, put on by the uh, great group, the, the assembly down there in South Carolina with Joey and um, and gang, and I'm really was really encouraged uh, to be able to share the message. But I'll tell you, it, it's challenging because it's personal. Uh, you know, if we're honest, when we go through things and challenges in life, and as you share the victories, as you share the defeats. Uh, it's hard to kind of talk about some of the things because it, ministry is about relationships. It's about people. You know, it's, it's not so much about intangible things. It's about real people dealing with real things in lives and real life. And, 
And when you when you are encouraged by people in, in their stance for the Lord, it really builds you up. But when you occasionally come across someone who's just not interested in growing or, or dealing with the Word of God in, in its fullness or in its truth, it's, it's discouraging. Uh, and if you let that seed take root, it can develop a, a incredible bitterness in your heart. And we got to be careful a lot not to happen in our lives. we got to resolve to keep going no matter what. Psalm 118, verse 8 and 9, says, It is better to take refuge in the Lord um, than to trust in man. It is better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in princesses. You know, it is better to hope in the Lord than to trust in man or leadership. Now, I need to clarify that. We need to put our hope uh, in, in, in like-minded faith, uh, like-minded folk who are seeking the Lord and trying to guide us and direct us. It's important. It's super important. But you see, our hope can't come from an individual. Our hope has to be rooted in the Lord. Because, you know, sometimes people may, uh, well-intended or not, they may let us down. And, you know, if you define yourselves or your own personality based upon the acceptance of others or the rejection from others, your life is going to be a constant roller coaster. Maybe you dealt with some of that. Maybe you're dealing with some of that now, some rejection from somebody who's really close to you or somebody that you really trusted in that relationship is a little bit rocky. But I want to encourage you today, and I hope the takeaway from today is that no matter what you and I are going through, God is a constant. God will guide you and direct you through no matter what man or situations or, or demonic forces may throw at you. You can find hope, legitimate hope. Hope that just not wavers along with, as the wind blows, but legitimate hope to find peace in the midst of the storm. You know, the title of the message death, uh, is, is Better Hope in the Lord Than Man. But you know, sometimes standing for truth is hard. My encouragement to you is, you know, because sometimes you stand alone. Sometimes you look around to the right or look to the left and you realize, yeah, I don't think anybody else is standing with me. Now that may or may not be true, but it may seem like that. And, you know, because nobody really likes to be alone. I mean, we like our moments of maybe retreat. You know, we, we like to take some time to get refreshed, maybe in an early morning walk or a Bible study or maybe a weekend of just kind of relaxing and kind of recharging ourselves. But I'm talking about true aloneness. If we're honest, we know the scripture says it's not good for man to be alone. Right? And the Bible says in Genesis, you know, God created a helpmate, a helper. But we need each other as a church. You know, the marriage is a depiction of our relationship with Christ and the church. But it's also a depiction of interdependence. That we need each other. That we need to lean on each other's shoulders when difficult moments happen. You know, if standing for truth costs you something or costs you relationships, stand anyway. You know, sometimes you may learn the hard way about to put your trust in man or a job or a situation. But you know, we've got to remind ourselves that those things are crazy. Relationships come and go. People come and go. But God is the constant. You know, one of these... Uh, scripture verses that I want to share with you this morning is probably a story that you well know. Go ahead and turn to 1 Kings uh, chapter 18. I'm not going to spend a lot of time unpacking uh, Ezekiel, because, or excuse me, Elijah, because a lot of us know uh, the story of Elijah and, and the battle there that took place on top of the mountain. And if you haven't spent a lot of time with 1 Kings chapter 18, I encourage you to go read the whole entire text, because it's a fascinating story. But in 1 Kings chapter 18, you know, we have this amazing encounter by an amazing godly guy who is really dealing with some challenges in Israel. He's dealing with people who claim to be the people of God and are serving and worshiping Baals and the Asherahs and all these different false idols. And Elijah, along the way, feels alone. And you know what? He doesn't get much support from the king either. The king of Israel, Ahab at this particular time, was not only not take tearing down the idols, he was given his blessing 
for his wife and the rest of the, the people of Israel to worship them. And as a matter of fact, it created some tension, as you can imagine, between the voice of God, Elijah, and Ahab, the king. We can honestly say, I don't think they had a very good relationship. Because when you look back at verse uh, 17 of 1 Kings chapter 18, after a season of being apart, as a matter of fact, Ahab hunted Elijah down and would, kill, would have killed him if he found him. There was a season where he just hated him. As a matter of fact, it tells us in the text, verse 17, when, when Elijah was presenting himself to Ahab after a period of time of being separated. Verse 17 says, When Ahab saw Elijah, Ahab said to him, Is this you, you troubler of Israel? He said, I have not troubled Israel, but you and your father's house have, because you have forsaken the commandments of the Lord and have followed the Baals. Now then, send and gather for me all of Israel at Mount Carmel together, 450 prophets of Baal and 400 prophets of Asherah who eat at Jezebel at their wife's table. Assemble all these guys. 850 guys, give or take some other servants along the way that would support those guys. This is a massive group of people. And I can see Elijah, as you've seen this scene unfold in your mind maybe many times before, he's alone. He's looking around and there's not a lot of people in his camp, in his corner, standing there getting his back. Going into an intense scene and feeling like they're all alone. And you know what? Elijah in this moment knew that he wasn't alone. He knew that God was on his side and he knew that God was against this group of people who were causing problems, who were causing Israel to forsake the Lord, to worship the Asherahs and the Baals. And Elijah said, okay, assemble all these guys together. You know the story. If he's God, and, and, and then they, they sacrifice uh, to this particular get Baal, if he responds, then fine, we'll, we'll serve him. But if, if he doesn't, then we'll serve the Lord. And you know the story. I'm not going to fully unpack it. But the story, you know, this, the idea that Elijah brought all these guys here. They were going from all morning sacrificing, trying to appeal to the gods. And by the way, the text is really uh, interesting. Uh, I'm not going to really spend a lot of time on it. But verse 27, when it says, you know, talk a little louder. Maybe he's gone aside, your God. When, he, when he's poking fun at the people there, that implies that maybe your, your God is using the restroom. That he's got maybe like constipation or something and he's too busy preoccupied over here that he can't come and accept the, the, the sacrifice that you're offering. Speak louder. Proclaim louder. He knows what the people were doing. They were cutting themselves. And by the way, that's an element of the, the blood sacrifice is a requirement in bell worship. They were screaming louder. And you know what? Never were answered. And of course you know the story. You know, God uh, answered Elijah when he prayed, and not only left up the altar, but everything around it, the water and everything. It's an amazing story. And it's one of the highlights of Scripture. You know, here Elijah can stand on the mountain proclaiming the presence of the Lord. And you know, I don't know if you've ever been there. Maybe some of you all have dealt with a situation where you're, you're really coming against evil and corrupt influencers face to face. It's a scary place. Number one, you need to make sure that your heart is right. You need to make sure that your heart is aligned to truth. You don't want to be on top of that mountain and start doubting. You don't want to have, is, is this really what God said? Did he really want me to be a part of this? You, that's not the place to be having those questions come up. In the midst of the battle, you need to already have that resolve. Elijah knew that God did not promote or accept this. And so in this particular situation, in this battle, this confrontation happening, and of course, God uh, gave Elijah victory, and then, and then Elijah immediately said, round them all up and just kill them now. What happened next, and they killed all those problems, what happened next in chapter 19, then the very next chapter, verse 1 through 3, you have this incredible mountaintop experience, says, now Ahab ran to tell his wife, said he told Jezebel all that Elijah had done, and how he had killed all the prophets with the sword. Then Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah, saying, So may the gods do to me even more if I do not make your life as one of those, uh, one of them by tomorrow about this time. And, and Elijah, he was afraid, and he, and he arose and he ran for his life. And he came to Beersheba, which belongs to Judah, and left the servant there. You know, stop and think for just a second there. When I, when I think about this story, this doesn't fit the narrative. 
Right? I mean, you think about it. God just allowed Elijah to confront incredible, massive amount of people and fought victory to accept the sacrifice that from him and to, to deny the sacrifice, if you will, from these 850 false prophets. And immediately after the situation, what do we find? We find that Elijah is threatened once more by Jezebel. And standing it, instead of confronting her or instead of challenging her, what does he do? He runs. He runs for his life. Have you ever been there? I mean, he felt outnumbered, outgunned, lonely, scared. Well, wait a minute, this shouldn't be. Didn't he just have this incredible mountaintop experience? Well, yes. But some reason in this very moment, some reason he felt alone because, you know what? The situation presented itself that Jezebel, whom he should not have feared, he allowed the fear to take root for just a moment. And it caused him to run, to flee, to, to, to really hide. Because he says, you know what, I'm just alone. I'm, I'm by myself. I don't feel like there's anybody else standing for truth. I'm looking around and I don't see anybody. Maybe you feel that way as well, or have felt that way. You just feel like that you're trying to do the right thing, and you look around, and there's just not too many people wanting to do the same thing. It's lonely. It's scary. It's sad. Because when all the work that God laid out for you and I to be able to, to mature in the faith through His Scripture, and, and such an appealing, hope-filled message, power of hope in Christ, true hope, these are not just empty words, but true hope. And yet somehow Elijah, for the moment, forgot that. Because he felt in his emotion in this situation, he allowed to take root and he ran. You know, I really appreciate this story uh, in, in many ways because it's very personal to me. As Bill has stated before, that uh, Oh, gosh, a little over 20 years ago, I set out for a journey of, after uh, recently getting married in the early 2000s, um, I just wanted to study Scripture more. I didn't really have a good knowledge of Scripture, and I, I thought, you know, hey, that's a, a great place to be at would be Bible college. And so I had some guys connect me with that, and I had a great experience when I went down to Johnson. I learned a lot. Uh, I also learned that the Bible can become a textbook. Uh, and you've got to be careful that, that it's not just a textbook. There is important facts and things in here, but... But it, it, it's a love letter. It's, it's, it's an idea of communication to God directly to us. And I appreciated my time there. And, and when I went to, uh, when I was a part of the Johnson experience, I was a part of a uh, part-time uh, youth ministry. And after I graduated, became full-time. And for the most part, it started out pretty good. But until... Uh, you know, there were some things that, that really bothered me. Maybe people weren't dealing with maturity like I, I thought they should. Uh, they're not really wanting to grow as much. And that wasn't everybody. There were some people that wanted to grow, but for the most part, it just, you know, and it, like, oftentimes in congregations, there's a lot of apathy. Well, everything was going along uh, as it was before until that one day I got a call. I got a phone call that I received uh, in my office and I answered it, and they weren't asking, they were looking for me, they were looking for uh, senior minister at the time. And I said, well, if he's not in his office, I'll try to page him, I'll go look for him, I'll be right back. I went down to his office, he wasn't there, but I looked out, his car was there, so I knew he was somewhere. And I thought, the thought occurred to me, hey, maybe he's out front showing somebody the new addition that was just built uh, in front of the church, uh, the church building. Uh, that, that maybe he's showing that off, maybe he's down there. I don't know why I thought that, but at that time I thought, that's where I'll go, go take a look. And I went down there to the front of the building, and of course I didn't see anybody, but then I heard a noise come from the closet. What was that? So I walked over to the closet, which was the sound room, and it was locked. I think that's odd. We don't never, normally keep that room locked, at least from what I'm aware of. And then I heard another noise in there. I said, this is a little bit odd. And I don't know why I initially responded this way, but instead of just kind of going back to my regular routine, looking the rest of the building, I kind of went back around the corner and just kind of hid myself. 
and out of the falls it came the senior minister in the lady. And I remember seeing that situation and just kind of leaning. Uh, first of all, my first probably response was probably, what's going on here? This is odd. Am I seeing what I'm really thinking I'm seeing, or is this something off here? And I share this because I think it's important for you to kind of hear a little bit about what kind of I've gone through. So the, one of the first calls that I made a little bit later in the day, or not so not far after that happened, was to the elders. I was pretty scared. Very young in the ministry. Um, and I talked to the elders, and they all came over to my house. We had a long conversation, and they, they eventually kind of got, to, got together to have a meeting uh, with them. And then shortly thereafter, it was presented to the congregation that, hey, we're going to give our this guy some time off for some medical reasons. Because um, he just had a lot going on. And you know, I knew that wasn't the truth. As a matter of fact, I was really hurt by that. Because it was it was not at all what, what was really going on. And I remember they were sitting in the congregation at that after that meeting had taken place. And I didn't physically obviously have one, but metaphorically I felt like I had a spear in my hand. Much like David and Saul. I feel like I could have stood up and I could have threw that spear and it would have just completely been a bomb on that place. I could have done that. But I did not feel called to do that whatsoever. At least in that moment. And so after that meeting I met the, with the elders and things and Talk to him about my concerns. I don't know if you've ever had to talk to leadership in, in, in a way that's, that's confronting, but it's hard. It's scary. I never signed up for that. I don't like confrontation in that regard. But my motive for truth and my desire to help was more, more prominent than to let things go. My goal was to help this guy along. My goal wasn't to take anybody out, to hurt anybody. We're on this journey, right? And I believe if this guy would have stood up and been the first one to repent, I would have been the first one up there to help him and, and support him. After a period of season, we, my wife and I, we were praying about it, we talked about it for a long time, and we just we chose it's time to leave. Uh, we, 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 we resigned um, because it it wasn't getting any better. And as a matter of fact, I had been threatened with my job two or three times if I said anything. I said, you know, it's, it's time to go. But I remember in that moment, my heart was broken. Because as I read scripture, I was like, this shouldn't be. This should, this, aren't we called to work through things and be honest about things? And if we mess up, repent and turn away from that to go a different direction, to work together to encourage others. And I realized some of the hands maybe were tied from some of the leadership at that particular point. But it was lonely. My son Andrew was four time, and we had nothing lined up. You know, full time job, nothing lined up. Look how scary that is. I was advised sometimes, you don't want to do that. You want to have at least something lined up. I said, you know what? I'm going to trust the Lord with this process. You know, we just can't be here in your conscience anymore. And, you know, situations like that, they, they change you. They can either harden you and say, I'm done. I have a desire to help people. I have a desire to work through things. I want people to mature. I want people to overcome. That's all the reason why I entered into ministry to begin with. To help people. To walk through life together with them. Not to hurt anybody or destroy any kind of you know, reputation or anything, but to help people mature. And when you come across people that don't really want that or, or don't know how to apply that in their lives, it's discouraging. Especially if you sit down almost and try to say, hey, this is, this is, it seems like this is where God wants us to be. And it's ultimately rejected. It's lonely. And I can appreciate the story there with Elijah because in the midst of his confrontation, he felt so alone. And what I've learned from that is, you know what? Even in, in the next, next chapter there, that flipped over a little bit further in 1 Kings 19, uh, verse 9 to 4, 14. You know, there's this conversation happening here. And, and, and Elijah feels so alone. And, and God shows up there and, and reminds Elijah that he's not alone. 
As a matter of fact, he said, you know, he asked him in verse 19. Uh, uh, excuse me, verse 9. Uh, it says, then he came there to a cave and lodged himself there. Behold, the word of the Lord came to him and said to him, what are you doing here, Elijah? Why are you here? Now we know the reason because Elijah felt alone. Elijah felt that, that although he was seeking the Lord and trying to honor him and make him known and to represent him well, that the large majority of people around him could care less. You ever been there? Maybe you're there now. What in the world was that? Maybe, maybe you're there now. But, but the idea there is God is trying to remind us that no matter what, just like he was reminding Elijah, no matter what, God is there. He's there in the midst of the fire. Genesis there in the midst of the illness. And I appreciate your message so much. He's there in the midst of chaos or confusion or job loss. He's there. And I know we know that in, in concept, but do we really get the depths of that? That should motivate us and give us hope beyond anything this world can offer. Because you know what? If God is there and God said and reminded Elijah that he was there, as a matter of fact, there were 7,000 that met in Bell beneath the bell. That you're not alone, Elijah. And just like this, you and I are not alone in this fight for truth. You know, we're, we can't engage an enemy on our own strength. We can't do it. If you try to, you're going to fail. You're going to be discouraged. Maybe that's where Elijah forgot. Maybe he was just realizing that as God was leading him, he was trying to do too much. I don't know. But he just got discouraged. But we're called to engage the enemy through God's strength and through God's power. One of the best examples that I've seen uh, related to this or just engaging the enemy uh, came last year. Uh, and I, I so appreciate the, the peace force uh, represented here. Uh, how many people do we have uh, in law enforcement or have been in law enforcement here? I know Brian's here. Plenty of representation. Appreciate you so much. Yeah, appreciate you so much. I always tell police officers, I have so much respect for what they do and laying their lives on the line every day. And uh, I don't know how many of you all know uh, Josiah Sutton, but the last year he got to help me uh, work in a, in a business that I was in lawn care for a while. And as I was, as we were at this particular uh, company uh, mowing a lawn, uh, there was this car that flew down the hill. And we're like, what was that? That was flying. That looked out of control and it hit a building. Uh, and then literally seconds later, the cops pulled up uh, and then this other guy came running down the hill. And apparently, long story short, a kid had gotten behind the wheel and just thought it might be fun to try to drive. And he ended up taking the car and taking it off down the hill and hit a building. And the, and the cop went and picked up the kid and was took him to the back of his car and was trying to, you know, to help him back to, you know, bandage his wounds. Uh, it didn't look like it was it was it was life threatening or anything, but he, he was he was banged up pretty good. And what I saw next was the was I found out later the father standing over the officer's shoulder, yelling and cursing at the kid because it was his car, but he was cursing and cursing and belittling the kid. The kid probably was seven years old, maybe maybe six. And I'm watching this, and like, I mean, you're standing here with my wee biker, you know, like, what, what's going on here? This is crazy. But what I saw next just impressed me in the, in the confidence. When the officer turned back around and put his hand up and basically was implying, step back, you know, I'm dealing with this kid, I'm dealing with this situation, you know, we'll, we'll deal with you in a minute. The guy kind of took a step towards the officer. And that's, a, that's an act of a threat, right? You know, you step in, you don't do that, right? Took a step. What did I expect in my mind? Maybe the officer to take a step back. That would have been my reaction. But what does he do? He takes a step forward to him. <laughs> and engage him nose to nose. Now he wasn't trying to pick a fight, but I just thought to myself, somebody's going to throw down here in just a second. This is not good. Now the guy knew better, thankfully, not to punch a police officer. That's not always the case. There's some morons out there. <laughs> But in this particular case, what that spoke to me was, man, he just engaged in this in the enemy and showed the confidence. Don't do that. Don't confront me. Don't do this to the kid. Man, I love that. I love that. It just so encouraged me to engage in the enemy, taking that step of confidence. And you know, whenever we engage the enemy, and by the way, men and women are not our enemy. Now, situations like that in the 
on the field right. They're, 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 they're the enemy in, in the sense that they don't respect uh, public authority and in the sense of police officers and things like that. But in, the men and women, in a sense, there's a spiritual battle going on behind the scenes. That's the true enemy. Our, our, our war is not against flesh and blood. And when we ever engage the enemy, we can either shrink back or we can take a step forward in confidence, however strong or fragile that confidence is. And that's something I learned back when I had that challenge. I was like, I'm not very confident, but I, I think I know that this is not right. And I took a step in faith and saying, hey, this doesn't seem right. I never at once, thankfully, had an accusatory or angry or belittling attitude in that situation confronting that. I had a desire to see restoration. To this day, I never once made it my point to defame or slander that guy. I could have. I lost relationships, well meaning relationships because of that. People were told things about me that weren't true. Man, I tell you, it's easy to defend your reputation. But what I've learned is it's more important to develop your character than your reputation. Character is who you really are, who God knows you to be. Your reputation and in, in, in the outside may or may not be true. But the, your, your character really is what matters. Because God knows that. God knows the heart behind what you're saying or what you're doing or why you're saying it or why you're doing it. You know, I was reminded recently, even by, by Phil Sutton, he said, you know, that's true. You've got to be concerned about your character. But, you know, when you're really developing your character, those who matter will really notice your, your and give you a good reputation because they care and they really see who you are. Because the people who really matter, they're going to notice. And that's something I've also experienced. People may or may not have an accurate understanding of who you are or, or why you're doing what you've done. But do it with good intention. Because core convictions... That'll get people uh, noticed. Or they'll, get, they'll take notice. Go and turn to Jeremiah chapter 35. Jeremiah chapter 35. This is another group of guys, family, that I absolutely love. The Rechabites. If you don't know, if you've never read this, uh, this is one of the most encouraging stories in Scripture, I think. Because, you know, we may, we may face some battles. We may face the public debates. We may face the mountaintop experiences like Elijah did. Or we may just face the daily battles that we have to deal with. The internal battles. You know, the laziness or lust or greed. Or dealing with, if you feel like insecurity, you fill in the blank. But if we conquer those daily battles, we know this to be true. If we conquer those daily battles, when we stand on the mountaintop, it's going to be a natural overflow of what we already believe internally and privately. It's not the moment to determine whose side you're on when you're in the midst of the big battle. It's not. I mean, because if you do, you're not going to be very effective. You're going to shrink back. And that's something we see in the character of Jesus constantly, day in and day out through his life. He never shrank back. He never turned aside. When ridiculed, he offered no ridicule return. When spit in his face, he did not spit back. Matter of fact, Peter tells us that he offered us as an example when being reviled, he did not revile in return. And when you and I are developing the character of Christ, Christ's likeness, we can do the same thing. But you know what? It's not in the moment. It's not going to happen when you're being reviled to figure out if you're going to revile back or ridicule to ridicule back. You've got to resolve those now and internally, daily. Thinking about it at camp here while we're together. And recognize that when challenges happen, when challenges come, and they will come, and they will come again, and they will come again, and they will come again. Because you see, what I experience is, and I, I've talked to people about this, is the kingdom of darkness is not neutral towards the light. It's hostile. If you don't believe me, look at Romans chapter 8. Go and turn to Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8 reminds us that the kingdom of darkness is not neutral, it's hostile. Romans chapter 8, verse 7. Let's just do back to 6. For the mindset on the flesh is death, but the mindset on the spirit is life and peace. Because the mindset on the flesh, here it is, is hostile towards God. For it does not even subject itself towards the law of God, for it is not even able to do so. And those who are in the flesh 
cannot please God. And that's our goal here at camp, right? To please the Lord. Figure out ways that we can mature our faith to stand up against the challenges in our life that we come across, but also stand up to the challenges that we may have inside. So we can find some victory. So we can find real hope. Because you cannot give something to someone else if you don't first possess it. You've got to have hope in order to give hope. We know this. It's been already brought out before. But in order to have it, honest hope, we've got to be able to then internalize it ourselves. Jeremiah chapter 35. By the way, if you've ever studied the story of Jeremiah, it's one of the most discouraging books of the Bible. And I don't mean that lightly or... or but, but Jeremiah is known as the weeping prophet. Why? Because every time God commissioned him to proclaim the word of the Lord to the Israelites, you know what kind of response, audience that he found? Rejection, 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 rejection. I could go on and on about that. But the Israelites did not listen to the word of the Lord. And so Jeremiah found lots and lots and lots of discouragement. But then we have this group of people, the Rechabites. And Jeremiah is given one more commission by God. And here it is in verse 1, chapter 35. It says, The word which came to Jeremiah from the Lord uh, in those days, Jehoiakim, the son of Josiah, king of Judah, saying, Go to the house of the Rechabites and speak to them, and bring them into the house of the Lord, into one of the chambers, and give them wine to drink. So then it took Jezaniah, the son of Jeremiah, son of Hasbaniah, and his brothers and all the sons and the whole house of the Rechabites. And I brought them into the house of the Lord, into the chamber of the sons of Hanan, uh, the son of Igdaliah, the man of God, which was near the chamber of the officials, which was above the chamber Messiah, son of Shalom, the doorkeeper. Then I said before the men of the house of the Rechabites, pitchers full of wine and cups. And I said to them, drink the wine. Now let's stop right there for just a second. Jeremiah called, was called to bring in the Rechabites. Right, this family, this, this nomadic tribe, a group of people who just kind of lived in the wilderness. They didn't have a, really a place to dwell uh, for their own. They, they were kind of living in tents. They kind of traveled from area to area. Uh, they, they, they had some convictions by their family that was given to them. And Jeremiah was told by God to bring them in and offer them wine to drink. Now, I don't know about you, but how did the Rechabites feel in that situation? Well, we don't quite know, but I imagine it's something like this. It's just the whole house was there, verse 3. Meaning that as you're looking to the left and right of your family, an extended family, an extended, extended family, everybody's there. There's over there the big Bubba. There's Willie over there. You know, there's Jethro. I don't think it's not Hebrew names, but I imagine it's, you know, they looked around and they saw all the names of the family members everywhere brought in. And maybe, maybe they're thinking, man, this is great. We had a big family reunion. You know, Jeremiah's called us all together. Maybe. Or maybe they were thinking, looking around to the left and right going, you know what? Everybody's here. Everybody's here from our clan. Are we getting ready to get judgment from the Lord? Remember back to Joshua chapter 7, the sin of Achan, right? The whole tribe of Achan, everybody was brought in, and they're looking around, and they all were brought in because they were really end up suffering the results of, of, of Achan's sin, and they were stoned. So maybe they're thinking, we're all here, we're, we're getting ready to get judged. And by the way, when you're caught into a, an inner chamber of the prophet, it is a message directly from the Lord. You cannot get any more clear than that. And maybe they're thinking, this is it. What does Jeremiah do? He does what God told him to do. Told him to do. Set pitchers of wine in front of him. In verse 5, it says, he told him, drink the wine. Verse 6, look at the response. But they said, um, uh, yeah, but they said, we will not drink the wine. For Jonadab, the son of Rechab, our father, commanded us, saying, you shall not drink the wine. You, your sons, uh, forever. You shall not build a house. You shall not sow seed, nor plant your vineyard, a vineyard uh, or own one. But in tents you shall dwell in all of your days, that you may live in the days of your lands which you sojourn. We have obeyed the voice of Jonadab, the son of Rachel, our father, and all that he commanded us not to drink wine. All of our days, our wives, all of our children, our sons and daughters, they chose to follow 
the standards of family commitment from generation to generation. I don't know about you, but Jill mentioned that my wife and I have one, six wonderful children. We're so blessed. Children are really a blessing to the Lord. Uh, they, they're challenging at times, but they truly are a blessing. But, you know, if I were to make a call right now to, to my wife to talk to a couple of my kids and say, hey, I'm out of town. Would you make, tell the kid, or talk to the kids, would you make sure that this is accomplished before I get home? Now, if they love their father and they're obeying and they're listening now, they're going to do what they're expected to do because they know that dad loves them and expects them to do what they're doing. But does that always happen? It should. Listen up, it should. <laughs> but it doesn't always happen. And obviously, I have some redirection at that point I have to do. They don't do what they're told to do, right? It's hard just to get our own kids to do what we ask them to do. Much less our grandkids. I don't have any grandkids. But much less our grandkids, our great-grandkids, generation after generation. Imagine that. Like, I'm resolving to make sure that my family for the next hundred years are going to hold to these expectations. You know, yeah, right. Good luck. I mean, you can leave it in your last little testament all you want, but enforcing that is going to be very, very difficult. Yet, somehow, Jonadab was able to share his convictions with his own family and say, we will not and you will not drink the wine. Well, where does this come from? Where does this... Where, why, why was he able to do this? Well, the Rechabites refused to drink wine. Uh, they, they pointed not only to their ancestors about not drinking wine, but, but maybe it was because some of the temptations that at the time, uh, drinking the wine or drinking some, living in the stone homes, brought about with the Israelites. You know, what is it about uh, living in tents that, that causes people to be refined? You know, twins, twins, tents, <laughs> tents were humble dwellings. You know, they would make you hardy to live in a, a tent with the wind and the weather constantly dealing with that day in and day out. You know, not indulging the body with the comforts that modern conveniences at that time, even stone huts, would provide. You know, they're movable. If they, if they drop of a hat, you could pack up shop and leave. If war was coming to the area, they could say, hey, we're not going to stay here. We're going to move on. Judgment of God's coming along. We can get out and get out of here. You have a dwelling place, it's a lot harder to move. But, but why did John and Dad do this? Was it just to exercise his authority over his extended family, saying, you will do what I say, and you'll like it, right? If you ever tried that as a parent, how effective is that? <laughs> Don't do that. It doesn't work, right? It, it, you, you, haven't, you haven't captivated their hearts. They'll win their hearts. It seems to be that John and Dad won their heart. And show them why. Well, if you look back for just a second, you can hold your thumb here. Turn back to 2 Kings chapter 10. Remember, as I mentioned, kind of opening up with, with Elijah, dealing with Ahab and, and the Baal worshippers and the Asherah worshippers. Well, we have this scene again that judgment is again coming against the house of Ahab. Uh, and we have this guy named Jehu, was somebody who was bringing about that judgment by God. He wasn't allowing the, the worship of, of the Israelites to worship Baal. He was going to eradicate it because God pronounced that judgment. He said, look, it's coming. You need to repent. If you don't, it's coming. So we have in verse 15 of chapter 10 of 2 Kings, the judgment coming. Here, look, look what happens. It says, now when he had departed there, he, he this is Jehu, he met Jonadab. Look at it here. Here's the first introduction of this guy. The son of Rachel coming to meet him. And he greeted him. Uh, and said to him, Is your heart right as my heart is right? And John and answered, It is. And Jehu said, If it is, give me your, your hand. And he gave him his hand. He took, uh, took him up into the chariot. And he said, Come with me and see my zeal for the Lord. So he made him ride in his chariot. And when he came to Samaria, he killed all who remained to Ahab in Samaria. And so he destroyed him according to the word which he spoke to Elijah. So Jehu and Jonadab were now together in this, this, this battle purging the house of Israel from the, from the Baal worship. And you know, maybe there's an aspect here where Jonadab saw Israelite sin, the child sacrifice, the drunkenness that, that came from too much wine, the out of control living. And he saw if this is not checked, my family could potentially go down the same road. 
And so somehow, someway, Jonadab made this proclamation internally first. By the way, if you're going to pass on something to your family, extended family, to the church, it's got to be first with you internally. Made this decision, I'm going to live this way first. And then he proclaimed it to his family and, and said, this is who we need to be. We need to be set apart. We need to be people who are, who are truthful and living. People who are maturing and having developed godly character. And we can't be a part of this. And you know what? I don't know exactly what motivated John and to do that. But he did it. And back to Jeremiah chapter 35. He brings, Jeremiah brings these guys, this tribe, into the inner chambers of the prophet. He says, I've set before you wine. Drink it. What would be going through your mind if this was a, this reality? I mean, this is a mouthpiece of God, right? The prophet, the great Jeremiah. We've got these family convictions. We've got these convictions knowing that, hey, we've had this for generations. But this is the prophet of God. Who are we to not listen to the voice of God? And But he said, you know, even though he's telling me to do this, their response was, we cannot drink the wine. We have conviction. We've done it so long, we're not about to compromise now. I think, the text doesn't record, but I think Jeremiah truly smiled. Finally, people of conviction. Finally, a group of people who are not driven by the winds of culture, by, by whatever it is that makes you feel good. These people had conviction. And you know, in the midst of all the discouragement that Jeremiah would have gone through with the people of Israel, he has this group of people who are nomads. And they say, you know, we, are, we can't do that. We hear you, but we can't do that. Have you ever met somebody who's full of conviction? What's it do to you? It makes you want to say, I want to follow that. I want to be a part of that. I want to be, I want to be like-minded with that person because they're driven. Now, I'm talking about convictions for the wrong things. I'm talking about convictions for truth, for godliness, for, for the right things. We can follow people who are convicted about things that are just ungodly. Don't do that. Because you're gonna, both going to end up in a pit. But following people who are convicted for the Lord to grow in maturity, to grow in the faith, to grow in, in, in the, all the aspects of life and godliness that God has for us. That's the beautiful thing that, that God has given us with the picture of the church. We have living hope. We have convictions that will take us through any storm and any life and other people to be able to walk through with it, with us through. Amen. And you know, the word of the Lord came back to Jeremiah, and look at verse um, look at verse fourteen. Actually, let's just go back to verse twelve. It says the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah, saying, "Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel: Go and say to the men of Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem, Will you not receive instruction by listening to my words?" declares the Lord. The words of Jonadab, the son of Rechab, which he commanded his sons not to drink wine, are observed. And so they do not drink wine to this day, for they have obeyed their father's command. But I have spoken to you again and again, I could keep, and I could add again and again, yet you have not listened to me. Also, I have sent to you all my uh, sent to you my servants, the prophets, sending them again and again, saying, Turn now every man from his evil way and amend your deeds, and do not go after the other gods and worship them. Then you will dwell in the land which I have given you to your forefathers. But you have not inclined your ear or listened to me. Indeed, the sons of Jonadab and the son of Rechab have observed the command of their father which he commanded them. But for this people, they have not listened to me. So what does God promise? He says, you know, because you guys are observing, you're not going to like a man standing before me, the house of Rechab. But Israelites, look at them. Look at these examples of the people who are committed. And I think that's an encouragement to us as well. Be people who are convicted and following the kind of hope that allows us to be changed, to be, to be sacrificed for the Lord. You know, when I moved to, to Roanoke, uh, Virginia, which is now where my family and, uh, and I preside, 
uh, continue in another ministry for, for a number of years. Uh, and you, you can imagine, I went there kind of hurt for a while. Um, I was very encouraged by the people that I met there. And, and, and uh, But I never never could fully understand this concept of Romans 6.1. Shall we go on saying that grace may increase? And the answer is no. I saw the example of that down there uh, in Tennessee. I saw, you know, we can't do this. We gotta, we gotta, we gotta allow ourselves to be mature in the faith. I could, but I just got pieces together until I met Sue and some other guys who knew it. Some of you all know who that is. Uh, we started studying the scripture together and helping me connect some of the dots. I always had questions about, you know, what are we to do and how are we to live out our lives? And you know what? When I started to understand that we can be overcomers, overwhelmingly conquerors, according to Romans eight. I was like, this is exciting news. This is real hope. For the addict who can't overcome all his addictions, there's real hope found in Christ. Real, sustaining hope. So this is a popular idea, right? It's not. It's not. You can, I started sharing this with some of the guys that I was running with, some of the, you know, some of the preachers and things like that, talking to, and uh, the congregation I'm serving at, and it's just not a popular idea. They, they, would, they constantly came back and say, you know, our nature is corrupt. We are Roman 7 Christians. We can't help, I was told, but to sin. And I remember bringing up the question, if that's, if that's true, then, then why does John condemn people who practice sin? 1 John 3. It, over and over again, those who practice sin are not of the Lord. This is not making sense to me. This thing about it from a different perspective. Let's say you're an employer. You're hiring a new employee. And he comes into the office and you say, hey, you're the right man or woman for the job. And he or she comes up to you and say, you know, I got to tell you, running this cash register, it's in my nature to take some extra money on occasion because it's in my nature. I can't help it. I'm going to have to steal it. It's who I am. What employer is going to hire that person? Well, if you're, if you're a reasonable business owner and expect to make a profit eventually one day, you're not going to hire them. Right? I mean, I mean, what spouse on his or her wedding day wants to hear a, a particular, uh, the other one say, hey, I don't know if I can, can be faithful or not because it's not really my nature. Who wants to hear that? Or a family member that a child is going through an addiction or some, some challenge. You know, I, I can't help but doing this. We know that that's not really hope. That's slavery. That's, that's an excuse. And you know, where, where does that basically lead us? Well, it leads us, if, if a person has this, that mindset and just can't overcome, it leads us to this particular thing on July 23rd. Last year, there was a prayer breakfast. Uh, Nancy Mace was asked, she was a South Carolina politician, she was asked to share that day at the National Prayer Breakfast Day. And she responded, I'm paraphrasing here, that she was almost late because she, she was, her, her boyfriend was trying to keep her from getting out of bed that morning. And she received, a, excuse me, she received a ton of backlash because of, is she promoting fornication here? Is she, what's going on here? So she received a ton of backlash. So she responded on social media and said, well, I go to church because I'm a sinner, not a saint. You see what that mindset produces? Excuse. Now, could she work through that? Yes. But that's not the purpose of church, just to briefly brush over whatever indiscretion or sin that you're a part of. It's the purpose to mature us in the faith to walk in the newness of life. Amen. That's, that's true freedom. The other thing is slavery. It says that you can't, that you won't, that you will never be able to. And guys, I've met people, many ministers who proclaim that. Good luck. You're never really going to be able to break free. That's not hope. That's not hope. You know, because I had that mindset for a long time that you can't really break free. You can't really be developing Christ-like character or mature and on that journey, developing Christ-like character daily. Putting off the old, putting on the new. But you know, when I go back and read Ephesians 5, go and turn there with me. Excuse me, Ephesians 4. God is calling us to live differently. He's calling you and I to live differently. Because there is real hope to be found in Christ. I take such encouragement and comfort from this passage. Because it says, look, your life can be different. My life can be different. Look at verse 17 of chapter 4 of Ephesians. 
Paul's writing here, he says, So this I say and affirm together with the Lord, that you walk no longer just as the Gentiles walk in the futility of their mind, being darkened in their understanding, excluded from the life of God because of their ignorance that is in them, because of the hardness of their heart. They have uh, become callous, having given themselves uh, to, over to sensuality for the practice of every kind of impurity and greediness. Look at the transition here. But you have not learned Christ in this way, if indeed you have heard him and been taught in him, just as the truth is in Jesus. That in the reference to your former manner of life, you lay aside the old self, which is being corrupted in accordance with the lusts of deceit. And that you're being renewed in the spirit of the mind. Put on the new self, which is in the likeness of God, and has been created in righteousness, holiness, the truth. And notice the transition here. This is what God expects of us and enables us to do. This is what provides hope. Verse 25. Therefore, laying aside falsehood, speak truth, each of one of you, to with his neighbor, for we are members of one another. Be angry, yet do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger. And do not give the devil an opportunity. He who steals must steal no longer. It can't be in your nature. You're called to break free from that old sinful nature. God's given you a new nature. Partakers of the divine nature. He who steals must steal no longer, but rather must labor, performing with his own hands what is good, so that we will have something to share with the one in need. He goes on to say, verse 29, Let no unwholesome talk or no unwholesome word proceed out of your mouth, but which only which is the word of good of education according to the need of the moment, so that it will be uh, so it will give grace to those who hear. And the scripture's full of this. I don't have enough time to unpack all the transitions that God allows us to, to deal with. And you know, when I, when I, my wife and I, when we recognize that God is, is calling all of us to this maturity, this filled life, you know, we decided to, to then kind of resign from the traditional ministry aspect. We kind of gone into, right now, a home church that we're a part of, uh, that moves out of our home regularly, that it, it is desiring to proclaim the truth to live it out, to encourage one another. And if we get discouraged, to build each other up. Because I believe that's what Scripture does. It tells us to build each other up. It's so discouraging if you meet a man or a woman who say that they're just comfortable with their sin nature. I met a guy one time and he said, I'm very comfortable with my sin nature. It gives me great joy with the grace of God. How can that be? If you're comfortable with disappointing your Father in Heaven daily, you say that to your spouse? It gives me great joy to know my wife is just, her husband's so dis, dissatisfied with me. It gives me great joy. You're, you're an ignorant person to say that because you have no idea what they really feel. God wants us to have an honest relationship with us. It's built on truth. It's built on love. It's built on hope. Real hope does not disappoint. Pray with me. God, thank you so much, Lord, that you allow us to Look into your word to be challenged, to be encouraged, to be changed, to be transformed by what we see. The example of Christ lived out in a difficult world. Thank you for setting that example to us. We can look to him, the perfect example. How to deal with our enemies, how to deal with challenges, how to deal with hunger, how to deal with pain. God, you given us that example through Christ and you've empowered us through the Holy Spirit to live differently. Help us realize that, God, each and every day. Give us humble hearts, hearts to hear, talk to the lost and reach, reach them for where they are and try to encourage those who really want to know the truth. Help us take stands and we're called to take stands but do it with the right heart, the right humility. You know, other times when we're called to or we may think we're called to, to stand up against something. Help us, give us the discretion and discernment when not to engage. Lord, we pray for that for wisdom. Thank you for everyone here, Lord. Thank you for the camp that we're a part of, and thank you most for Jesus. And this is name I pray. Amen. That was, that was tremendous. That's the third time I've heard that sermon, and uh, it never disappoints. Are we men and women of conviction that will not recant, who will not run and hide when the pressure's on? That's so important.
Um, I've had a similar experience, so that one's really near and dear to my heart. So you get kind of choked up when you think about sacrifices made, but the growth that came from that and your convictions grew. So thanks, Mark. I appreciate it.